You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome everyone virtually to ODI here in London, broadcasted from my living room, as uh, we all got used to uh, in the last few months. My name is Marta Foresti. I'm the director of ODI uh, Europe, and at ODI we are especially delighted to uh, welcome all of you uh, for this very special event uh, today on um, Africa beyond uh, and with uh, COVID-19. Um, we've organized this event in partnership with our friends and partners of the European Think Tank Group, which is a network of European leading think tank on sustainable development and international cooperation. Um, and we believe that we are organizing this event and this conversation at a very timely moment in this rather eventful uh, year of 2020. Uh, we'll come in a minute to why uh, this year has been so eventful, but as it happens, uh, 2020 marks the 60th uh, birthday of ODI, so it's our 60th anniversary. And so we are celebrating this uh, milestone, the landmark in our history, by organizing a series of um, online conversations uh, to address the issues of the world uh, post and with COVID, what the new normal will be look like and the global reset that will be needed. Um, to learn from these experiences and to work towards more sustainable and equitable societies and economies. 2020 is also a year that started um, with a lot of emphasis and conversations on a renewed um, enthusiasm for partnerships between um, Africa and Europe, um, very much uh, seen as a, one of the key priorities of the new European Commission launched at the beginning of this year and fast forward with everything that's happened in between and since the beginning of 2020 to what's ahead of us in the autumn, um, working towards a pretty important and strategic uh, summit between the European Union and, Africa and the African Union. Um, so we began to think about how to uh, contribute to this process and in the lead up to the summit. We realized that so much of the conversations about the relationship between Africa and Europe started with the partnership that Europe really wanted and the commitment to a partnerships of equal. And so many events and conversations were revolving around these issues. Well, today we want to have a conversation about Africa to begin with um, and to really reset a little bit our attention to the variety of experiences and, um, and realities on the African continent and really place the questions about the future relationship between Africa and its international partners, not just with Europe, but uh, but globally. And of course, we do all this um, in light and with the experience and looking ahead at the impact of the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, and when it comes to COVID and what's happening um, in Africa in relation to um, the um, the COVID, you know, the, you know how what how what's happening in Africa with COVID, how bad or how good. Uh, or uh, the, the response has been and what to expect. I think there is a very lively debate out there, typically led by numbers and estimates about whether we can be optimistic and pessimistic about how fast COVID will spread across the continent. Today, we don't want to um, join that conversation. We want to have a rather different conversation. Also, learning a little bit the lessons from this country, the UK, and many other European countries, or how different the experiences uh, of countries have been in terms of responding 
um, to the pandemic, how wrong some of the estimates have been in terms of uh, the, uh, the speed of, of infection and what was best to do um, to limit the spread of the, of the disease. And so we actually are very interested to discuss a little bit more what's happening in different African countries, uh, very aware of the fact that uh, those experiences are likely to be very different, different countries, but also to learn from those who are you know, on the ground dealing day in and day out uh, with this uh, reality uh, on you know, the decisions that are being made, the political um, dynamics behind uh, different models of response. And so really place that conversation about Africa and COVID much more in the specific context uh, at the country and even um, at, the sub-national, uh, at the sub-national level. We'll then also want to discuss the other big topic um, that everybody's interested in, which of course what's going to happen next we know still very little about what's, ha- what's, what's going to happen overall to the evolution of this of the pandemic and this disease. But there is no doubt that there are great challenges for all of us ahead when it will come to the so-called recovery. And, and a lot of it, and rightly, and the emphasis of, is placed on the economic impact um, of, of COVID. Um, but it's also very important to bear in mind how some of the political dynamics are going to change in the world um, in the months to come. And so we want to look at um, the prospects for the, you know, the recovery in Africa, both from an economic and from a political perspective. And we thought we'd do this uh, with a lineup of speakers who know what's happening on the ground from different parts of the continent, from different countries who have direct experience now in the past uh, of working um, in, in a range of different countries in Africa. Uh, we, as you, uh, as you know, um, from the you know the messages that you received, as you can see uh, on the chat, we are experiencing some technical problems. Um, in particular, there is a power cut in three ta- in, in uh, sorry in Cape Town that we are trying to address, and so we will have to slightly adapt and change a little bit the order um, of interventions for this meeting. But I'll still um, uh, introduce now the panel that we've got today online, or we soon have uh, online um, in full. Let me begin with colleagues who are able uh, to be on the line right now. Um, We have uh, Nicholas Westcott, Nick Westcott, who is currently the director of the Royal African Society, uh, but formerly also British ambassador to Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Burkina Faso, Togo and Niger, as well as a senior official in the European External Action Services. So someone who's had direct experience of working in a range of African countries, interesting both Francophone and Anglophone Africa, which I think is is one of the uh, many dimensions that will matter um, in the diplomatic relationships ahead. We also are lucky to have with us David Pilling, who is, of course, the Africa editor of the Financial Times. And David has been one of the journalists that fairly early on um, has mentioned and raised issues that perhaps the way African countries were responding and experiencing um, the, the COVID pandemic was not the way we were all assuming and that it required some attention in relation to the different experience of different countries from Ethiopia and others, and it will um, help us um, frame these questions about how uh, COVID is uh, having an impact in different parts of the continent. Our two um, um, key uh, sort of key um, keynote speakers are Yvonne Akisoyer, who will join us very shortly, who is the mayor of Freetown in Sierra Leone, uh, but who also led uh, the Ebola response uh, from Sierra Leone and um, has a, a, at the moment a, a, a real uh, commitment and engagement internationally on working with other mayors um, in Europe and beyond 
on issues that matter um, to, um, to to the continent as a whole, and really um, sort of showing how local leadership uh, can be an interesting way of rethinking the way international cooperation and global cooperation uh, will work in the future. And finally, um, hoping that the power cuts uh, will be resolved um, soon. Carlos Lopez, who is the High Representative of African Union, European Union Relation, and the Chairperson to the Commission of the African Union right now, but was also the Executive Secretary of UNECA and worked as a senior official in the, in the UN and who has been writing extensively recently about the impact of COVID um, on the African continent and also calling for, for um, new and different ways of engaging internationally uh, with different actors, uh, specifically on the economic impact, and we'll come back to that to that in a minute. Um, we're delighted to have so many of you online today. Um, you will be key participants in these discussions, and we'll ask you to adapt with us to uh, the the you know the necessity to uh, react to these slight technical problems we're having. But we are planning to have at least two rounds of questions. Um, uh, from all of you in the audience, so please submit your questions for the chat and we will do our best to respond to at least some of them um, during the conversation. We're also taking a poll, um, a bit of an opinion poll of how you all feel about what the priorities for the recovery specifically in Africa should be. I think it's fair to say that there are lots of calls out there for all sorts of measures that should be taken from debt relief, I'm following very closely the debate, for example, on the likely impact on remittances, and a lot could be done there. So we want to know from you what you think the priorities should be. You have four choices, social protection, health systems, debt relief and economic stimulus, digitalization, new technology, trade and investment. Obviously, we know that all of these matters, but we want to push you all to give us a sense of what you think, think the absolute priorities should be. So you can vote um, in this polling and we'll read out towards the end um, uh, what you think and whether your opinions will change as the, uh, as the conversation evolves. So while we wait for Mayor Akisoyer to, um, to join us and to really give us a sense of the situation on the ground in Freetown in Sierra Leone, David, let me ask you first to share with us uh, your own experiences your own, from your own reporting in the last few weeks, in the last few months on um, the response to COVID in different African countries and as much as possible give us a sense of how that differs for country to country. Sure, okay, well I feel slightly guilty, uh, thanks very much for inviting me first of all, I feel slightly guilty talking about um, the situation in Africa um, on the ground for a number of reasons. One of course is Africa is um, you know 54, 55 different um, countries and I think the way I answer will sort of uh, reflect that. But more importantly, um, I'm stuck in West Acton in my kitchen. Um, that is where I've done all my reporting from. So I think you should bear anything I say, uh, you should bear that in mind. I mean, all my reporting has really been, um, you know, on the phone via video conferences. And I have done a huge amount, um, um, you know, calling dozens and dozens and dozens of people over the last uh, few months. But I'm not there. So we need to be very clear about that. Um, in terms of response on the ground, I think it might be useful to kind of um, um, look at this in separate sort of buckets of countries. And um, if you go from the top, this doesn't necessarily mean the best, by the way, but if you go from the top, um, I would mention South Africa. South Africa really has gone for what you might call, you know, a full European not even US, but full European style 
um, lockdown together with a massive stimulus package of something like 10% of GDP. So, I mean, South Africa's kind of early um, decisive action led by Sarah Ramaphosa looks, you know, quite like um, uh, some of the actions that you had in Europe. I mean, with some important differences. One, it came earlier. I mean, in terms of on the curve when Ramaphosa announced the lockdown, that was before there had been a single death in South Africa. Um, it was a very um, strict lockdown. There was a ban on the sale of um, alcohol and they immediately, um, you know, insofar as they could, um, began a testing program. There were these um, um, mobile testing units going around the country. Um, so this was a, a, a very sort of strong, severe lockdown with all sorts, of course, of, um, uh, of, of corollaries, some of them negative, police brutality, uh, people stuck in, you know, housing, uh, of, you know, without necessarily kind of access to what they needed. Uh, you know, um, I think South Africa probably running water is, is generally um, um, not a problem, though I'm sure there were, there were people for, for whom even that that was a problem in some of the um, uh, worst areas of the townships. But um, but this was, a, as I say, a kind of a European style lockdown um, uh, in, in, a, in the South African very um, um, mixed and uh, sort of bifurcated um, uh, setting, which is obviously a you know is a is a, um, a legacy of apartheid. Then I think if you you've got another group of countries, um, uh, countries like Ghana, Kenya. I was speaking to the Prime Minister in Guinea Conakry um, uh, the other day, uh, Senegal. These are countries that I would say Uganda would be another one. I think that falls into this box. That have sort of they've they've acted quite aggressively and um, often short of full lockdown. It might be a lockdown in particular cities. Um, it might be um, uh, bans on transport between different areas in the country. Um, uh, it might be um, uh, uh, curfews at night. Um, social distancing measures, closing schools, places of worship. Um, uh, social messaging um, and some of this uh, and I'm sure Yvonne will talk much more eloquently and knowledgeably about this than I have but some of this informed by um, by the experiences with epidemics um, particularly the Ebola epidemic which of course um, struck West Africa and, and Central Africa principally DRC um, at, at various stages so for example the Veronica bucket which I think was invented in Ghana it's a simple bucket that allows people to wash hands in the absence of necessarily, you know, um, easy access to to running water, which can be put outside um, shops or um, uh, homes or um, offices, um, so that uh, people can wash their hands and take those hygienic messages, which are very easy to uh, you know to talk about, but 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 not easy to actually implement if you don't have the means to to implement them. So these are the kind of you know hodgepodge um, measures. Um, but 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 when I say hodgepodge, I don't necessarily mean not thought through. Very much thought through in many cases, and kind of adapted to um, uh, to the realities on the ground, where people took the view that a full lockdown was just was just too much and was going to be too severe um, on, on people who needed to go out and earn a living every day. Now, Ethiopia, I would put in a kind of a third bucket, and um, they really took the, um, the view that a lockdown 
itself was impossible in the Ethiopian um, uh, context, that they had really no ventilators to speak about, you know, whether it's a few dozen or a few hundred, um, this is way, way short of what would be needed if the um, epidemic got out, of, uh, got out of control. So they decided they needed to take um, early um, interventions within kind of within their power so what they did was they sort of, I mean, first of all, they, they were very, they, they, although they allowed flights to keep coming in from, from China and other parts of, uh, of the world, they were very quick to screen um, at airports and contact trace anybody who had um, symptoms or reported fevers. Now, this is not perfect, but they decided not to let the kind of perfect be an enemy of you know, what, what, they, what they actually could do. So although maybe some cases could slip through the net, that, that, that kind of system would certainly catch other cases. And, and you'll have seen that the epidemic was quite slow to get going in Ethiopia. Now, it is true that for all the countries I've spoken about, while they had early successes um, and, and um, sort of clamped down on the numbers very early on, in the last few weeks and even days, we have seen quite worrying kind of acceleration of the number of cases. But I think we ought to talk about those early stages because they are that they are important. So what they did, for example, they used um, the, the system of health posts, thousands and thousands of health posts around the country that had been um, really um, uh, built for very basic healthcare, for maternal healthcare, for child healthcare. Um, under Meles Zenawi and his health minister, of course, Dr. Tedros, now head of the WHO. And they sort of switched that on. They went house to house. They asked people if they had high temperatures, if they'd traveled anywhere, if they'd come into contact with people who'd traveled. And according to them, it's very hard for me to uh, verify, but according to them, they went to 11 million houses um, and, you know, screened in a, in, a, in a sort of very rudimentary fashion, but nonetheless screened 40 million people. Um, and originally, anyway, this was quite effective and they had, you know, um, uh, deaths in the 20s or 30s. And when I was speaking to them a couple of weeks ago, cases, I think about 350, that has now accelerated. They now have more like three and a half thousand cases. Although we should stress that this is partly a function of, of more testing. And as Dr. Nkengasong at the uh, Africa CDC says, if you test, you will find. The fourth bucket, and sorry I've spoken so long, but the fourth bucket, I would put in countries like Burundi and Tanzania, which have really kind of almost denied that this thing exists. Um, John Magafuli, the president of Tanzania, you know, um, uh, said God would take care of all of this. He then promptly disappeared to his village. We haven't really heard much from him since. Um, the numbers that are coming out of Tanzania are, um, are not really credible. There's, there's many uh, reports that there are far more deaths than are being reported. Uh, Burundi um, was practically the same. They pushed ahead with a with an election, um, and that the rallies in that election may indeed have been a kind of focus of spreading um, the virus. We don't know um, because there are no reliable numbers coming out of Burundi. Uh, we do know that Pierre uh, Nkurunziza is dead. Um, there's lots of rumours that he may have died of COVID. Uh, itself, which would make him the first head of state to die. That's not really provable, but a number of diplomats citing medical sources say that is true and that there are also members of his family who have COVID. So those are examples, I would say, of countries that have basically kind of denied that this is going on and have let it get out of control. But in the African context, they are the minority and uh, most countries have taken this seriously and enacted measures within their um, 
ability and scope to do so. Thank you, uh, thank you, David. And actually, is is very helpful to get this this overview of country. Also, very useful to um, uh, categorize, you know, the different experiences of countries, which I'm, I'm sure you can, you know, one can recognize across the world from countries that have denied the problem of existence to those have acted swiftly and early. Uh, this theme of uh, the, you know, to work with what you've got and to the perfect being the enemy of the good and the importance of adaptation seems to me an absolutely key aspect of this debate. It's something that actually David Navarro on a meet in a, on an event earlier on um, this, it, it, here at ODI uh, really advocated for and pushed in terms of how we're going to ha have to adapt and live with the with the um, uh, with the virus. And so the importance of actually learning from this variety of experiences from different Af African countries seems to me as important, if not more important, than continuously to try to come to definitive estimates about, um, you know, the you know the rate of infections across the continent. So, um, Mayor Akisoyer, welcome uh, to ODI virtually. Um, uh, I'm sure, and I hope there will be uh, many opportunities soon to meet in person. In fact, we might. Uh, uh, we are working together on a really exciting initiative that sees. Um, uh, mayors across Europe and Africa working together um, on issues of your mobility in the months to come. Um, can you, we, I introduced you briefly earlier on, uh, and I mentioned to everyone uh, your role in the Ebola uh, response, but also your leadership um, as a mayor uh, with a number of other cities in cities coming together to think about how local government and cities government can really help rethink, redefine, innovate and adapt uh, to address global challenges, including COVID. So can you give us a sense about the situation in Freetown right now, um, how the COVID, uh, uh, you know, what, how the COVID response is evolving? Um, I know there have always been some, um, some riots and some um, violence a few weeks back. So give us a sense about what's happening now um, um, in, in the city that you so expertly lead. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. And it's, it's great to to be on. I mean, it's, it's been interesting what this, one of the things clearly this um, outbreak has done has just to open up platforms for sharing information much more easily with all of these Zoom calls and broadcasts. Um, and it was interesting to, to listen um, earlier on to, to um, the thoughts about what's going on in other countries on the continent. Um, you can find yourself so um, focused on your own situation, that outside of um, those other mayors that you're connected with directly, uh, you can very easily lose sight of some of the other innovations that are happening. So what's going on in Freetown? We're the epicenter of the outbreak. Um, we are still at a place, uh, and I'm not, I actually just said to, to someone this morning, um, I feel uncomfortable with where we are. Um, we've got, We've got just north of a, a thousand cases now, um, 600 or so in Freetown, a thousand cases um, nationwide, um, 600 plus in Freetown. Um, and I think that when I look at Pakistan and India and the way that they started quite gradually, and now they found themselves in a position where their health uh, facilities, their health system is really struggling. Um, that's precisely where we do not want to get to. Um, we, the response in in Freetown, 
it runs in Sierra Leone, is being led by the national government. And again, one of the questions that you had in this in this document speaks to the role of local governments. And I, I think it's 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 worth actually just taking a moment to talk about those dynamics. Um, we're seeing them playing out across the globe um, in, in different continents. I mean, very famously, we, we see um, the tensions between the U.S. Um, presidential sort of view of what should be happening in the response and what's happening at state and city levels with many mayors um, behaving or, or taking a different line. Um, and, and here in Sierra Leone, um, it's, it's, it's not as dramatic, it's not dramatic at all. Let me just, you know, sort of like rephrase that. But but we do have um, a situation where the government is leading the response um, and what cities are able to do is to play a complementary role um, and to try and find a space where they add value um, as opposed to being in a position. And that's really, that really stems from the, our, our governance structures where things like you know, the major hospitals um, um, and therefore testing and so forth um, are, are centralized. Um, so you know, you, the, the role you can play is a role of collaboration um, as best as, as that's possible, um, and then fill in gaps where you see. So the Free Society Council's COVID preparedness and response plan is a plan that speaks to um, the areas in the response where we believe we can add value without being in leadership. Um, because you know we can't we can't be in leadership and testing. Um, we can share ideas. We can put forward uh, um, suggestions. Um, but where we can play a, a lead role, where we can actually add value, uh, is where our our our, um, our plan is focused. So it's got three strategic elements: behavior change, messaging, behavior change support, and isolation and containment support. And stepping back out of the free town context just for a minute and speaking about one of the features um, which is so prevalent across African countries, um, and that feature is informality. So it is this informality, whether it's informality in housing or in transport or in the employment sector, it is this informality which um, is, is fairly unique, well, no, it's not unique. We have informality in, in Asia, in Latin America, but it's really prevalent in a city like ours in Freetown. And so in, in crafting out um, the city's response plan, the city is looking to see what it is that we can do in the context of informality to, at the start of the um, discourse, really try to get people to understand what COVID is and to respond. You know, um, there were there a lot of comments and this morning uh, on, on radio, there was a review of, of a CAP survey that's done that is uh, that has highlighted, I mean, it is a few weeks out now, it was dated April, the work was done in April, but it showed that 35% of Freetonians do not feel that uh, um, COVID is or keep themselves safe from COVID is more important than them being able to address their economic challenges. Um, and that sort of number creates a real challenge. And it was interesting because 
it's not so much that is the message out there. Um, you know, reference was made of Burundi and Tanzania and sort of a, a, a governmental denial. Um, at the individual level, you also have a question of choice. Um, and that decision about, yes, I hear the message about Corona. Mm, do I believe it? You know, that decision to believe or not to believe um, and what flows from there in terms of your behaviors and consequently in terms of the transmission chain is really significant. Um, and that's where we're trying to put a lot of energy. But I'm also recognizing increasingly um, that, you know, there are limits to what um, can be done about sharing a message um, in a context where you aren't fully in control about the exercise of the response. Um, and because the, you know, these, these things speak to each other. Uh, um, believing a message is all about trust. And trust is as much about experience as it is about perception. Um, and, and so, you know, within the context of the national response, there are areas which were talked about on the radio this morning. And again, this might be something that other people are experiencing in, in other parts of, of Africa, where um, there, there isn't a consistency necessarily in application of, of you know, um, enforcement, whether it's about mask wearing or, you know, um, bars, you know, respecting the curfew, um, people traveling into district when there's inter-district lockdown. So in Freetown, the, the Freetown City Council's response um, is focusing in on that messaging, um, on building trust, um, and trying to get to a point where, and it's, it's not an easy task, and it's one which um, cannot be done without um, collaboration with the, the central government. So, so this is something that, you know, is a work in progress. Um, but as we think about the saving of lives, um, and in the context of opposition um, mayors and you know sort of central governments, um, there is a place where there's a piece where one has to say the only solution, the only answer, is collaboration between the central government and the local governments, and that's a really, I think that's a really important message coming out of um, this experience for us um, in, in here in Sierra Leone. Um, the second element is around behavior change support. Um, and again, our informality is at the heart of this. Um, mention was made of the Veronica bucket, um, and the Veronica bucket has taken on new designs, you know, and we've seen innovations where there are versions now where you don't need to actually touch the bucket, um, the pedal releases the soap, releases the water, and that's been quite, you know, quite sort of a, a sidebar on this. Um, it's just seeing the innovation that's, that's come through. Um, we, we, have, um, we have support that we're giving in because of this lack of, of, of access to, to running water. Um, we're introducing in, in a number of our informal settlements, and we're actually earmarked 68, we're, we're introducing rainwater harvesting. Um, a very simple solution to make water more accessible. Um, but the mask, the masks is another key piece. Local production, jobs for tailors. Um, but you know, in the in this at the same time, um, we in this, at the same time, we have a, um, a very important piece around 
again, this question of, of belief and trust. So Frito City Council has launched a mask up campaign and we're looking to provide masks for 120,000 people for free. So targeting our informal settlements, but most importantly, our market women who are very vulnerable and in the front line, commercial drivers. And, and I've just been reminded actually, um, the driver's union president just called me to say, we haven't received the masks yet, just because of our children's call. So that needs to be fixed. Um, but also persons with disabilities. So really the vulnerable groups, 120,000 represents 10% um, of the city's population. Um, in isolation and continued support, which is the third element, we are coming alongside central government um, and providing um, community care centers for asymptomatic um, people who live in informal settlements because we don't have the luxury of um, space uh, in you know in those settings for how for home isolation and, and home treatment, um, this is what's going on in Freetown, and I think the economic impact, which can't be ignored, um, is really being strongly felt, and yet at the same time, we've also found ourselves in a situation where as a city, we have gone ahead with the rollout of a new um, property rate reform system, which means that we're asking citizens to actually pay rates in this difficult time of COVID. But we've had to make a choice between creating another crisis in a crisis in a crisis, or recognizing that even in the midst of the challenge that is COVID, and to this point about living with COVID, that we can't just let everything go. Um, it's, been, it's been a challenging time, um, but it's one where we, we've learned. Um, we have fast-tracked elements of Transform Freetown. We've put other things on the back burner. Um, we've, we've seen, I've seen personally more clearly the extent of vulnerabilities, particularly of women um, within communities. Um, and it's something that we are determined as a city to ensure that using the cliche that's around now, we build back better. We haven't locked down. There've been lots of conversations at the national level about a lockdown. We've had three day lockdowns twice, but there hasn't been that sort of consistent 14 day or longer situation and I'm glad there hasn't been because I do I, you know I know our situation and our circumstances are such that more people are dying still from malaria um, than they are from COVID. Not that we want to joke with COVID. Clearly, it has the potential to far surpass malaria deaths very quickly. Um, but we need to take things within our context and ensure that we don't aggravate already life-threatening situations in trying to address this. We have to find a way to live with this. Um, and, and I'm conscious that I've probably gone over time, so I'm gonna wrap up now, but I wanted to say a quick word on social distancing um, and marketplaces, where we've um, seen lots of pretty pictures of markets, open markets with you know people with you know sort of two meter distances between them. We've spent a considerable time um, effort and resource to try and experiment with this in one market with 2,045 
traders. Um, the indoor market only takes 159 of them, so they're all on the street. Um, you're contending with cars, you're contending with commercial vehicles, you're contending with house owners. In a city with a density of 845,000 people per square kilometer, you need to you need to address your reality. And our reality is that we cannot overnight um, create the, the, the lovely sort of scenes we see in other places where people are standing in the circles and leaving a space between them. So much more emphasis on wearing masks, um, much more emphasis on people washing their hands um, and on building trust so that individuals, um, and we're not there yet, so I say this knowing that we've got a long way to go, but building trust so that individuals believe that they can take action, which at least on a physical level, through the hand washing, through the distancing where possible, and through the mask wearing, um, where they can break the chain of transmission. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mayor Sawyer. And we'll go in a minute to, there are some questions coming in from our audience that we'll definitely address. But can I ask you before we go there, because you mentioned a number of really, I think, important and interesting things, including these issues of the role between central government and local government, including and, and some of the limitations that um, local policymakers have in, in, in a response of this kind, even when the phenomena itself uh, uh, interest and affect cities much more so than other parts of the country. And it's been true in, you know, it's been true across uh, across the globe. And navigating that relationship of different levels of government is key. And it, uh, to me, it's a very interesting question about the future when we think about new models of international cooperation and the breakdown of global leadership in this. How we're going to create meaningful ways of engaging networks of uh, local politicians and policymakers that have had you know, these experiences in, in managing response and adaptation and innovation. But specifically on these issues of behavior and trust, which I think is, is been so key in so many countries and so difficult to, to get right. Uh, much has been said about what has been learned from the Ebola um, crisis. In your own experience on getting people to, to you know, building that trust and um, you know, encouraging people with actions that can build on that trust to do things differently. Uh, how much of your experience in your messaging that you mentioned and on what you're doing now with the citizens of Freetown uh, comes from your experience with the Ebola response? What have you learned from that that you carried into this crisis? So um, I, I often talk about four lessons. I mean, everybody's Ebola experience was personal. Um, there are many, many fighters in that in that war. Um, and, and therefore a, a multitude of, of lessons. But I, I, I speak of four, which um, will always stay with me. The first one is the importance of command and control. Having really clear structures for management, managing information and reporting lines nationally um, in, in cities, in, in communities. The second is community ownership. And that's what we've been speaking about in relation to the messaging and the trust. And getting to that point, and we certainly are not there yet in Freetown, where there is an ownership of this crisis as being, and, and a sense in which um, community leaders, significant uh, influencers, you know, school children um, are, are seeing this as, as their fight. Um, and and that, that really needs trust, and that needs engagement, it needs information, um, and actually, to a certain extent, it needs time. And where you've had um, situations which 
is our reality here in Freetown, where you know there's been a lot of dramatic occurrences. You mentioned the you mentioned the riots. Um, you you know I'm sure perhaps you're aware of um, recent statements, um, arrests, court cases, etc. It's very hard. It's very hard to uh, um, bring everybody along when there's so much background noise going on. Um, but but that notwithstanding, it, it's critical for the for the outbreak to be overcome. For there to be that sense, to a degree, it's never going to be hundred percent. But that sense of we're in this together. Um, and then the next is closing the gap between protocols and practice. And, and that's so important. I, I mentioned earlier on experience. You know, the people's sense of trust is often grounded inevitably in experience. So if you're not, if, if what you say happens in a response, if you tell people call 117 and you will have a response um, if you're not feeling well or if there's, you know, something is like a corpse on the road and people call 117 for two days and nobody turns up, you will lose trust. Um, and that doesn't help with community engagement. So closing that gap, um, and I think there's a ways to go. And this is what I talked about when I said there's only so much that one can do within our context in the in the local uh, arena because there's there are elements of this response which are only ever you know which are in the hands of the national response. And and then the the fourth one is 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 what we you know we've heard so many times it, it's that it's test trace uh, uh, um, isolate contain the the virus um and again your ability to do that is is really key to the trust it's really key it's part of your protocols um and it's also influenced by your command and control structure so those those are my experiences it, 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 they have fed into the plans that we have at the city level. Um, and I, I continue to share um, with, with others. And, and, you know, this is a journey. You know, I'm not here pointing fingers at central government. It's, it's a tough job um, to, to get this right. I, I, I really do hope that the community engagement piece, um, appreciation of the need for us to reduce the background noise and focus on the outbreak, I really hope that message gets across. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mayor Akisoyer. I think we still have uh, the uh, the technical problems in Cape Town. Um, so for now, uh, we can, we're still waiting to see whether Carlos Lopez can join us. But we have a couple of questions uh, from the audience, um, and some of them are, I think, are specifically um, um, for you, Mayor Akisoyer. And I think I would really like, as we then discuss a little bit, the recovery international cooperation to go back to this issue of um, different levels of government um, uh, on the way forward. On pretty much on these issues, uh, somebody who is anonymous is asking, there is no evidence that decentralization as such can increase effectiveness of governance and especially of the public investment unless there is sufficient capacities at the local level. Um, so coherent multi-level governance, I, I guess good collaboration between different levels of government um, and productive interaction at all levels are important. So. What do you think about that? It can be both the experience of Sierra Leone, but there's issues about how would one define these capacities that are needed to make um, local government uh, work effectively. And then perhaps more broadly also for David, 
the question about whether, and this is obviously something that is, you know, we're all wondering in different parts of the world, but whether as we think about the response and the way forward, we can address the challenges beyond those of health and economics factors, but also to address some of the pre-existing socioeconomic issues and inequality um, and employment that have made uh, some of the experience of COVID um, so challenging. Um, which, you know, what do you think of African countries having an appetite, I guess, uh, political will and incentives as well as capacity to 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 do that. Finally, a question about data. Um, I mean, in the case here about projections around COVID having not worked out um, and the fact that we have limited data, I would say that also in countries where there is plenty of data, some of the projections have not worked out that well either. Um, and, and whether this is because we asked the right question, the wrong questions or wrongly uh, frame, but a question fundamentally about whether going forward we can hope that across African countries we will make some serious investment into uh, improving the quality um, of data on health and beyond. Um, I, don't, I don't know, and maybe David, do you want to start with the question on um, on the um, on an opportunity to um, sort of to address issues beyond health and economics, which is something that when Carlos Lopez joins on Troy will also want to comment. And please, Mayra Kisoya and Nick, feel free to comment on, on all those questions. Um, it's certainly an opportunity, but uh, I'm quite skeptical as to whether it will be an opportunity that's, uh, that's taken. I mean, it's clear that COVID, you know, all around the world has been like an X-ray and it sort of shows in a flash to some extent, what's wrong with your societies? You know, uh, um, you know, in, in Britain uh, and around the world, we see that uh, key workers, the people who make the economy work and keep us healthy, are people who are, um, you know, badly paid, who are liable to have bad health outcomes themselves, who are often in Britain ethnic minorities, etc. Now, whether that's going to galvanise the government to do something about it um, uh, afterwards, um, uh, you know. I, I have a certain um, skepticism. I mean, a political momentum may build. Now, if you transpose that to Africa uh, and to, you know, um, African countries, you know, um, the, the same is true. I mean, uh, COVID has exposed, for example, in South Africa, the very different conditions that the black majority and the white minority um, uh, live in and therefore the conditions that prevail during a lockdown. But if anyone didn't know that before COVID, um, you know, they hadn't really been um, looking hard enough. Um, you know, in some countries we've seen that the security services are not everything that we might want. Uh, there was a state in Kenya where, you know, more people had been shot by the security services imposing curfew um, than, uh, than had died during COVID. Now, one can say, therefore, it becomes very obvious that one should um, uh, do something about that. Um, uh, but will that, will, you know, will government seize on that opportunity uh, uh, thereafter? Um, health services were obviously very much exposed. Um, you know, we ran stories about the lack of ventilators all around um, uh, the continent and the lack of IC units. Um, now, I think to some extent, um, that's a bit of a red herring. I think the battle will be fought um, sort of further down the health system and tracking and tracing and trying to prevent people reaching um, uh, IC units in the first place. Um, but still, um, the health systems of, uh, of countries have been, um, you know, exposed for what they are um, by this. Um, but post-COVID, will elites continue to leave 
their countries and seek um, healthcare abroad as they have done before and kind of leave the population to get on with it. Um, this is in the worst governments, not all governments are as bad as I'm kind of caricaturing in that sense. Um, again, one would hope so, um, but will they? I think the final point um, in my sort of slightly skeptical uh, uh, answer is that for a year or two, governments will be in less of a position to, you know, have national plans and mobilize public resources to put in place the public goods um, that I think, you know, are the kind of foundation of any sort of functioning um, uh, democracy and functioning um, country and development state, whatever countries choose choose to be, um, because they'll be cash-strapped, because the, these, uh, you know, economies um, will be hit very hard um, by this. The continent as a whole is set to, um, uh, is set to have its, you know, first continental-wide recession in 25 years, um, economies that rely on uh, uh, commodities such as oil will be even more severely hit. Even economies like Ethiopia supposedly will grow at three percent this year. We'll 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 see that. I'll believe it when I see it. But even if that's true, you know that's a seven percentage pull, um, um, point fall on at least stated um, official GDP growth um, uh, in recent years, and um, that's a hell of a hit to take. To, to expect governments to do more with less is to, is to really kind of be forecasting a concentration of, of mind um, and a concentration of policy and a concentration of leadership that I would absolutely love to believe um, uh, will result. Um, but I think I'll believe it when I see it. Great, David. And I really hope that we'll be able to, at least if, if for any reasons, Carlos will not manage to join us in person, this is a question and, a, and, a, and a, an argument that we need the two of you to find a way to have, uh, perhaps with, you know, a blog or something, because uh, I think the, you know, the, uh, you know, how do we, what, what can be done about this reality you just outlined about the inevitable um, economic impact that we will all experience the next few years, and specifically what can be the role of international community to uh, support and incentivize uh, recovery in ways that can actually work, given everything that's been learned and done that Mayor Akisori and others have outlined. Uh, on this question then on um, what will make decentralization effective, um, your experiences for us, Mayor Akisori, and then Nick briefly will bring you in on data and then we'll carry on talking a little bit about the future international uh, relations between Africa and other partners. Mayor Akisori. Well, I think I have a really simple example. Um, you know, you're saying, is there capacity at the local level? Well, there's capacity where there's investment. Um, and if I take my myself, or if I take my city um, as an example, we're now in the middle of June. Um, the budget for 2020, the fiscal transfer from the central government to Freetown City Council has yet to be disbursed. We've not received a single loan um, and we're halfway through the year. So these questions of capacity, um, you know, you, the grass is greener where you invest in it, where, you, where it's watered. Um, the, we, are the, we are people, right? Um, institutions are made up of people, of structures, etc. If investments are made at the local level, then you will get you know, um, capacity at the local level. If investments are not made, you will not have capacity. Um, so I think it's a decision about what we see as the most effective governance structures um, for the delivery of services to the residents of a city or of a local authority or of a, of a, of a district. Um, I, I am a firm believer in decentralization. 
I'm a firm believer that you know you do see an improvement in service outcomes, um, in governance outcomes, where you where you decentralize, but decentralizing without budget, without support, um, and then turning around and saying there's no capacity um, is a nice way to sort of get out of something, uh, which if you were focused on what we want to see to bring development, you wouldn't be saying, I think, my view. Thanks. There is also a quick follow-up question still for you about the, how closely you've been working with the private sector in Freetown and, and whether there is anything the international community can do to facilitate that relationship. And this question is from Purva Karkara from ECDPM in the Netherlands. And I forgot to mention earlier, apologies, that the questions about that David responded to was from Nazreen, who works for Surge Africa in Nigeria. So the private sector, Mayor Yvonne, how important it is in, um, in, in Freetown right now and how much better could it get? Right. So we've had we've had some um, engagement with the private sector early out in the outbreak. We had some calls with the um, with the Chamber of Commerce, with the Sierra Leone Chamber of Commerce, um, which which resulted actually. Let me just remember this. We resulted now with um, the Chamber of Commerce actually supporting. Um, one of our interventions, you know, supporting us with the provision of supplementary food for quarantine homes. So that's a very specific example. Um, in a more general level, a number of companies, banks, etc., private sector firms have looked at the FCC plan and have said, "Okay, we'd like to support you with this, we we'll support you with that." So there has been there's, there's, there has been collaboration um, with the with the private sector. But I think we also have to remember that the private sector. Is being really hard hit at this time, um, and and you know what what we see is them being um, responsible Freetonians and wanting to contribute towards in their city. Um, but I'm, I'm I think I think at this point in time, people are looking at their bottom line and they're considering what's going to be coming down the road. So yes, there's been collaboration. Um, and I really thank the private sector for it. Um, it hasn't been huge, but I, I'm, I'm, I think it makes a lot of sense from their perspective as well. We're getting on with um, we're getting on with support. We're reaching out for support. For, from our perspective, it would be just as well for them to be strong enough to meet their responsibilities. Um, their fiscal responsibilities to the city, property rate, business license, and, and support in that way. Um, and what social corporate responsibility they can chip in will be appreciated. But um, we, we also really care about our private sector in, in the city, and we know that this is a difficult time for them. So it's not a time where we're wanting to sort of add the pressure. They're doing a great job. Thanks. Thank you very much, Mayor Sawyer. So, uh, Nick, you wanted to come in on the question on data, and then I'll pick up uh, questions with you again, looking for the future of international cooperation. Thank you, Marta. A very, a very quick uh, point that uh, accurate data are very hard to get anywhere. We even find this in the UK, that although the official uh, level of COVID deaths is 40,000, the real level of excess deaths is around 60,000, you know, from the statistical office, even more so in Africa. Um, they do say that if you want a real picture of the COVID death rate, you ask the grave diggers. Death doesn't lie. It happens. And they know how many have died. And this is true throughout Africa as well, that you can't actually hide the truth of COVID. 
and those countries which have denied that it exists or it's a problem uh, soon find out that uh, their ministers start dying or their, their president dies or all their truck drivers are stopped at the border between Tanzania and Kenya because they test positive. And those governments that are used to perhaps not telling their citizens the whole truth um, are exposed and their citizens will know that. And it doesn't, as uh, the mayor has said, doesn't actually increase their trust uh, in levels of government. And as David has said, COVID uh, pandemic is a stress test for governments. It holds up a mirror, but it tests them. And those governments that are used to responding in an authoritarian way quite soon find that you can't solve the pandemic through the police. You actually need a health system to cure it. And the people will see this. So the longer you try and deceive, repress, the worse the situation will become. And because the primary impact in Africa is actually economic, uh, if it goes on for very long in that way, you don't build the trust of the communities, your governments will find themselves with a lot of very unemployed and very unhappy young people. And that will precipitate more rapid political change. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nick. And we are back uh, to trust and the importance of trust, not just in relation to the response and behavior change and the fact that people needed to adapt to uh, protect themselves and others from the virus, but it's actually fundamental in the recovery process and in sort of building this co concept of building back, uh, building back better. Um, at this point, um, I would have asked um, Carlos to um, um, discuss with us a little bit these views about how important so switching a little bit the emphasis now to the future the months to come and this the recovery which I think as we're all already discussing is not a phase two but rather is uh, you know is an evolution a continuation of adapting to the reality of COVID and changing our economies and societies so in this new normal in this recovery process how central will the relationship between Africa as a whole, and we've already, you know, we started the meeting saying how important it is to actually discuss in much more details the reality of the different countries in Africa um, with Europe, and again, with different parts of Europe. Um, so let me ask you, Nick, first, and others uh, later can also contribute. Um, tell us, you know, where, where do you see, see this uh, relationship going in the future? Um, you know, there is, there's definitely been great expectation and a certain amount of political investment from the European Commission and the new and Ursula von der Leyen in building a more equal, uh, you know, partnership of equal with Africa. Um, how much of that um, feeling is shared in different African countries and how crucial is Europe is, is as a, the, you know, the, the partner of choice uh, for the future? And does that vary in different countries, and especially those where you've had experiences as an ambassador? Thanks very much, Marta. Uh, in the same way uh, as for domestic uh, situation, the international situation, the pandemic, is a stress test for relations between Africa and the rest of the world. In fact, it, it arrives in the middle of something of a struggle for influence in Africa that's going on, uh, in which Africans will decide, but nevertheless, there is a jostling for that influence by outside partners. Um, the COVID pandemic is unusual in that Africa has usually found itself at the center of uh, the, the epicenter of the epidemic. In this occasion, it's not. It's a relatively peripheral um, uh, part of the health problem by comparison with first China and then Europe, now the US and Brazil. But it is at the epicenter of the economic uh, impact. And the economic impact has been deep and profound. And it's where the relations with the rest of the world are going to be absolutely critical for trying to restructure it. Or if you like the African response 
to the fact that uh, they have been so badly impacted by the downturn in the rest of the world, will they start turning in and saying, actually, we Africans have to find our own economic solution to this and becoming more autonomous? That's the kind of question that we're going to address. There's been huge vulnerability to the economic fallout um, because it's impacted on markets, prices have uh, fallen precipitously, particularly for oil, uh, transport cut off means a lot of horticultural products haven't been able to get to Europe. Um, remittances have uh, fallen uh, equally dramatically, 20 to 50 percent, some people say. Uh, capital was initially withdrawn, though it's beginning to come back. Uh, David knows more about that, but you know people are beginning to reinvest a bit. And agriculture has been a real problem because food supplies have been put at risk both by the local response and uh, international transport. There have been a lot of positive responses to that, including the digital response in Africa. But the international response has been very telling. Uh, China, as we know, has been a growing presence over the past decade, increasing influence, initially uh, economic, but increasingly they've wanted to turn that into political influence. But their response to COVID has been more gesture politics than substance. Uh, Jack Ma sends a lot of um, masks and PPE, but uh, China is not forgiving anyone any, de any debts. You might get a little bit of a holiday, but the debt is still going to be there. Um, the US, the other major player, has been huge uh, in responding to the HIV epidemic and Ebola, are nowhere to be seen. On the contrary, they've been withdrawing their funding from WHO, which is not only uh, some ways an insult to Africa, given it's the main UN agency headed by an African, but the WHO is central to Africa being able to uh, manage and effectively mobilize the health response. So no thanks to the US for its uh, response to this crisis, um, and that is rather representative of the, its place in the level of priorities of the present administration. The EU has been very active and has stepped up. And in some ways, this is an area where Africa is finding who is its friend in need. And uh, the EU has contributed substantially and specifically both on the health side and in delivering budget support quickly to provide that kind of liquidity for a number of African countries. It's, uh, COVID has put the EU under, under stress test and it's very focused on its internal problems. But even so, it has found time. Uh, to maintain its support for Africa, not just in the health area, but across the board. Um, the international financial institutions, World Bank, IMF, again, have actually been very constructive and tried to respond as flexibly and as quickly as possible. There is a big issue about special drawing rights. It's a bit technical, um, and that still needs to be resolved. But by and large, the international financial institutions have stepped up. The World Bank, the IMF, African Development Bank, they have been there. Uh, the UK is an interesting case. It has been in some ways a bit part player. Uh, it is still doing a great deal. Uh, DFID, who are about to be absorbed into the Foreign Office, which unfortunately sends a rather, um, a rather downbeat signal as to the prioritization of development for this government. Um, but DFID has remained very active uh, and uh, making a very constructive contribution. But it's a bit sort of, the government is not saying anything about it. It's a bit embarrassed. Uh, and therefore, there's very little coverage. Other countries that have an interest in Africa are also stepping up, but very much from their own 
uh, individual interests. The Gulf countries have become major players in the Horn of Africa, and they're looking for opportunities to buy up distressed assets, uh, move more into the transport sector, air, aviation, ports. Um, but this is entirely from their interests. Uh, and uh, therefore, while you accept the gift, you maybe look the gift horse in the mouth to see what's lying behind it. And interestingly, South-South cooperation has been almost invisible. The Brazil, India, uh, others are not really in a position to give Africa the help that it needs at this time. Um, what has emerged from this then in its in relations is that Africa uh, has its most positive relationship with actually the multilateral institutions. It's the UN, it's the IFIs, it's the EU that are stepping up and helping Africa at this time. And there's a question whether Africa realizes that actually it wants to preserve these international institutions because they will help protect it when it needs protection. Um, it is in many ways the most vulnerable uh, continent. It has the least resources. It, it can't pay people to go on furlough. It can't uh, prop up its national airlines. We see this in South Africa. Um, you know, the, the cash is not there. So they have to find other solutions and uh, take the help where they can. But they're going to be able to uh, operate most effectively in that international environment when they cooperate amongst themselves. There's been very good cooperation on the health side uh, across Africa. And it's a big question whether they will continue that on the economic side. Will we see the continental free trade area being pushed forward or just being put on hold, put on a shelf? We don't know yet. Um, but that's the sort of question that we're asking. In these circumstances, Africa needs to create more autonomous economic growth, not wholly dependent on global markets, if it's to provide a future for these young people that I was referring to before. Uh, that's really the sort of question I'm looking at Africa to find an answer to. The international community will help, but the answer is still in African hands. Thank you, Nick. This would, couldn't be more comprehensive and clearer, and I'm very tempted to go straight to Mayor Sawyer to ask her the extent to which she recognizes that picture from from Freetown and Sierra Leone. So this, um, you know, uh, the the multilaterals um, system being the sort of the partner of choice, the one has stepped up um, with the EU, others perhaps not as much as expected and the importance of uh, inter-Africa cooperation as a basis to um, uh, get more out of these relationships. Um, do you agree? Um, from our own personal side, you know, uh, our plan, uh, the response plan that I outlined earlier on, we've received significant funding actually um, from the EU. Uh, we've also received funding from DFID, World Bank, UNCF, UN Habitat. So to the point that was made um, by, by Nick, we, we, you know, there's been a, a stepping up of multilateral players and the EU has um, also demonstrated um, its continued support. And this, I think, significantly is happening at the subnational level. So this is support to the city of Freetown, um, separate to support that's being given to the national government. But in all of what's said, uh, where we want to get to is not to be that most vulnerable continent, um, those most vulnerable in any situation, you know, dependent on others to give us um, to give us handouts. And I, and I know it's a journey. I'm from the private sector. I've been mayor for two years. 
but one of my um, priorities of in becoming mayor was to build the revenue base of my city, which means building our sustainability, our resilience, our, our ability to create jobs, um, and therefore to pay our way. As you were talking, um, Nick, I, I had a message come into my phone, and I had to I had to turn and, and look. Um, I, I said that we had gone ahead with a property rate reform um, last week in the middle of COVID. Um, I, I literally was tearful as my team have just sent me photos of people queuing to pay their taxes at the Fidelity Council. Um, and I'm just like, I've written there, I'm choking back tears. Thank you, team. Um, and this is where we want to get to. I mean, this is happening because, and, and they're, they're, we developed a, it's a mob tax system, so it's, 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 it's digital. The entire city was geomapped. Every house was photographed. People who'd never paid property rates before are now paying property rates. But as you pay at the on-site banks in the council, your account is being updated immediately. And that confidence, seeing people do this in the middle of an economic slowdown, is also because as we speak, there are also parts of the city where we are cleaning gutters, we are building drains, we are planting trees. Um, and I never want to simplify anything because nothing is simple in life, but it's really gratifying to see that when people see service delivery, even if you've had to get a kickstart with health help from international partners, it gives you the platform to build trust um, and to begin to work through how you can be sustainable as a city. Um, COVID as a backdrop is a challenge. Our job creation strategy had been around tourism, a sector which has been very badly hit um, by COVID. So we're having to go back to the drawing board and understand what this is going to mean for us, um, you know, what alternative considerations we should give. Um, we, we've started an urban farming project as part of COVID response to um, help our most vulnerable grow their food as opposed to having to go look for their food. Um, and, and maybe this is maybe this is something we're gonna have to think about um, more broadly um, in terms of a, a you know a tweaking of our job creation strategy. But um, yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Um, David, let me come to you for a comment on what we just heard. I, I specifically would be curious to know about what you make of the picture painted by Nick of, in a way, you know, the old and traditional partners coming uh, coming forward and in a way the, you know, the multilateral system as we know it being the one that, you know, can be relied upon uh, to respond to the crisis. But also these elements of innovations and these elements of you know locally led uh, initiatives and specific industries and specific sort of adaptation and response. Some of those are you also like in the beginning. When it comes to this picture about who is out there that is interested uh, to cooperate and help, so to speak, um, how do we make the most of these you know these opportunities? How, how will the multilateral system um, you know be able to um, support? innovation that exists, including at different level? 
Well, I'm, um, I'm, even though I have occasionally written, sort of used this framework myself, I'm very uncomfortable with the whole idea of, you know, a scramble for Africa or a new scramble for Africa. Um, you know, this kind of big power play, you know, the uh, sort of China and the US fighting their battles out, um, you know, through the WHO or through the funding of the Africa CDC um, or through, you know, um, just rhetoric about who's a better investor and who's a better lender. I, you know, I find um um you know distasteful really um i mean africa africa and african countries are not a playing field to be played upon um they're countries with their own interests so i much prefer to look at this thing from the point of view of africa insofar as one can talk about um uh you know the continent as a whole and through the au and um, some of its institutions you know and more importantly african countries and african cities and there i think there i think the story is you know is is sort of it has some positive elements i mean there clearly is a lot more interest in africa um you know in the last 15 20 years after the whole debt write-off um, uh, you know, then you had China moving in because China had reached a certain stage of its development and needed resources. But from Africa's point of view, it now has all these sort of choices because on the back of um, China, you know, you had Turkey and India and all sorts of others of sort of the Gulf states, as Nick mentioned, have seen opportunities. And um, uh, and African governments and African businesses and African cities I mean, their job really is, in a sense, to play one off against the other and get the best deal they possibly can. Then, of course, you know, the 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 um, the duty or um, uh, of African citizens is to hold their own governments to account because you don't want a government, um, uh, you know, using using these opportunities to pocket money for 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 themselves. I mean, the whole point is that this, you know, opens up um, a potential to to. Yeah, um, to attract more investment, to attract more flows of, of capital into the sort of um, um, uh, industries uh, and public services and public goods um, that are going to drive um, development. Um, I know there was a question about innovation uh, and youth, and you know it won't be. Um, I mean, nobody who knows the continent at all well would be remotely surprised to see these sort of incredible innovations going on, um, you know, all around, whether it be, you know, factories that made one thing being turned into PPE factories or um, um, uh, brewers and, uh, now producing oxygen or apps that cleverly can kind of track track things, um, medicines being, uh, um, being um, uh, tested and validated and, and, and verified um, uh, through clever systems, and there's there's all sorts of incredible um, uh, innovation going on, um, and I think what is very important is that um, it's these innovators, many of whom are um, young, entrepreneurial, energetic, often optimistic. It should be they who are attracting um, uh, the capital. Um, uh, and that's both international capital and also domestic capital. I mean, I think it's, it has been quite noticeable that the big conglomerates that have money, the dangotes, if you like, of this world, generally don't invest in this whole kind of um, uh, entrepreneurial um, uh, uh, space and universe. Um, and that really needs to change because there's so much, um, uh, there are so many ideas. With, there's so much energy 
Um, and a lot of African solutions um, uh, are there with African youth who are just desperate um, uh, to create solutions to tackle these problems and to turn problems into opportunities. Um, that, that I think is really where the focus should be. Thank you very much, uh, David. I would like to leave the very final word to Mary Akisoyer in a minute. We are only four minutes to go. But given that you've touched on innovation entrepreneurialism, let me give you now very briefly the results of our polls in terms of what our audience thinks should be the priority for the recovery. And I'm afraid to say that the majority in the region of just below 70% combined believe that a combination of social protection and health system and debt relief and economic stimulus are the two absolute priorities. Um, with digitalization and new technology and trade and investment both at 17% each only. So it is interesting that, you know, we are, you know, when we think about the projects for the future, we, to some extent, perhaps in line with some of the things that Nick was saying about who are the ones who are stepping up, uh, who are the actors, and perhaps these actors, you know, will provide the kind of engagement and, and packages and assistance that traditionally international uh, sort of communities, um, international organizations do. Uh, on the African continent. But I really want to finish on entrepreneurialism and youth. And so the very final question from Ebenezer Obeng Akrofi from Ghana, which I think uh, would like Mayor, uh, if you're okay to just give us a final word on, is actually an African youth. Um, and they've proven to be responsive and adaptable to crisis in terms of innovation. What plans can be instituted at, a very, you know, at least in, in a, from, you know, what you can do in, in Freetown to substantively include youth in the post-COVID recovery phase. And let's make youth the final point of our discussion today. I think it's a good place to end. Dear the African child and youth are just a little bit off beyond children. Um, there's a in youth. Um, there's a recognition that um, education in, in its traditional form may not be the answer because there's so much catch up to be done um, and it was interesting that it was only 17 percent who thought that digitalization and innovation were important um, are going to be important drivers for the future i actually um believe that that is is where the future lies and that that's what's going to give our youth the best chance of being able to leapfrog um and contribute to development um, I can see that my connection isn't very good. I hope I'm still being heard. We can um, hear you. Okay, I think I'd like to I'd like to to, to close um, on this point that um, you know the uh, the high rates of unemployment which we currently have with our youth, the the um, failure to invest, um, and and now the challenge where we don't. Have have um, the sort of levels of uh, energy so that, that, that will allow um, the old type of investment in manufacturing, but also the interface with climate change and the need for us to be um, conscious of green investments as we go forward, for me means that we, as, we, as we invest in our youth, we should be investing in technology. Um, I just described um, an, an innovation in our city which is really built on technology, but which created um, jobs for 170 youth who were enumerated as part of that process, training them up, um, and which will enable them to go on um, to, to, to take up other opportunities which are more technology linked. Um, COVID, as many people have said, has shone a light 
into where their frailties, where their challenges, where their, their existing vulnerabilities. Um, and I think in addition to shining that light, from the perspective of identifying what the problem is, it is an opportunity to really think through where we want to go next. Um, and for me, investing in youth, investing in technology, investing in the digital age has got to be the way within the context of green economies. And that's true for Africa. Please let's not think that Africa can be thinking about green. We're doing ourselves a disservice if we take that approach. We're planting a million trees as we speak. Uh, thank you. And uh, it's great to, to finish uh, on youth and, and trees and technology and innovation. And perhaps it's, it's a reflection that as we, we and others and everybody, you know, uh, tries to, uh, you know, to, in, to make sure that the international community steps up um, and continues to be um, engaged um, with, with African partners that in addition to the fairly traditional way of thinking about the instruments that we have, the different kinds of financial support that is needed, they're really tapping into this energy, this youth, this adaptation, those, those lessons that across the different countries uh, David shared earlier on. Uh, uh, could be learned to really design, you know, all together in, in a collective fashion, a recovery process that really is no longer the old normal and, you know, helps us transition to a new normal, uh, including one where we can make the most of um, uh, the energy and the opportunities that the, uh, the African continent um, uh, you know, uh, has always uh, led on. Um, it was a real shame, of course, not to have Carlos Lopez with us today. I think the, 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 the um, the, the the problems in Cape Town were not resolved, but I was thinking, uh, we'll ask him, of course, but the beauty of this digital engagement is that one can do it in very different ways. So we'll find a way, uh, perhaps with some you know, responsive reflections from him on the discussion we had today to make sure that uh, we'll capture his views. Um, thank you very much to uh, all of you, the audience. I think there were more than 300 people listening online today um, and for your questions and your engagement. But a very special thank to David, Nick, and Mayor Yvonne um, Heike Sawyer for being with us today um, and for sharing so, you know, so openly and vividly your views and your experiences. Um, you know, apart from everything else, we'll continue to obviously monitor and engage in the next few months uh, in the recovery process. We will also continue to engage also with partners in ETTG on the EU-Africa uh, summit. And so there will be more opportunities to continue this conversation in different means. And hopefully we'll meet again. Um, thank you all uh, very much. Uh, have a lovely day and hope to see you all very soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>